Mr. President. The Minority Leader. Mr. President, I come to the floor today to hail a new moment in bipartisanship. My good friend, the Majority Leader, has agreed to a deal that both Republicans and Democrats can be proud of. In this deal, we will add three new Republican justices to the Supreme Court. In return, Republicans have graciously agreed to name the new FBI headquarters after James Comey. Today, we showed that Washington can work for both parties. Sentinel Cast number 84 coming at you. I'm Sam Sachs. I'm Sam Knight. We are in the Sentinel Fort in Washington, D.C. Check out the website, districtsentinel.com. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for listening. Coming up on the show today with weeks to go until not just the 2018 midterm elections, but the start of the 2020 elections, like it or not, it's true. We take one last look at 2016 and why Hillary lost by talking with Malika Jabali, who just published a compelling piece about black voters in Milwaukee walking away from the Democratic Party. Then we talk repressive measures in response to the recent nationwide prison strike. We're joined by Ted Kelly, a Philly-based activist and writer for Workers World. We also hear from Bryant Arroyo, an inmate at Frackville State Correctional Institute in Pennsylvania. Then the interns bring in the garbage can. It was a close contest this week. MBS, NYPD, the NYT, which set of letters get the garbage can? Find out at the end of the show. Real alphabet soup for this week's garbage can. Indeed. But first, time to dole out some justice. Sam Knight dropped the gavel, but he's got it back. It's guilty or innocent. Court's in session. First on the docket here, the caravan. Innocent. Innocent. The caravan is innocent. Eight hours, seven days out of a Trump. week. Innocent. Yeah. <laughs> Let right, people uh, in. Let refugees yes, in. Yes. 100%. Fuck innocent. chuds. All right. Next on the docket here. They punched their ticket to the World Series last night. The Boston Red Sox. Uh, I don't know. I mean, they're bad. Boston sports fans are bad, but... Intern Nate is Intern a fan. Intern Nate's a fan. So I'm not sure why we're going to find them innocent here. We're, I mean, well, you haven't put a compelling case for why they should be innocent or the innocent till proven guilty or something no i just i don't know that the the team uh certainly deserves their spot in the world series but fuck them they're guilty guilty <laughs> uh what let's you see think? i was gonna i was gonna say they're innocent i thought for a second you might all right what's here next on the deck mobs mobs innocent mobs innocent jobs innocent. next jobs. on the docket jobs guilty guilty fucking jobs <laughs> Get that job shit out of here. Guilty. Finally, one more short docket this week. Yeah, Ryan Zinke. Guilty. Guilty. That was easy. Okay, settled. So. Settled for this week. Court is adjourned. Moving right along. Let's get to the interview. One constant since the 2016 election is the publishing of articles trying to understand white Trump voters. Every outlet has done it, hoping to put their finger on how Trump was able to win the election, in part by convincing white working class voters who supported Obama to flip against Hillary Clinton. Often left out of the discussion, however, are the voters who aren't white, black working class voters who Hillary Clinton thought she had in the bag, but they stayed home because the campaign was never able to connect with them. Our first guest this week is Malika Jabali who trekked up to Wisconsin to put those individuals front and center to diagnose what happened in 2016. Malika is a Brooklyn-based public policy attorney, writer, and activist, whose writing has appeared in Glamour, Essence, The Root, and other outlets. And we talked to her about her latest in Current Affairs magazine titled The Color of Economic Anxiety. Your report is based on your time interviewing people in Milwaukee, exploring the city's economic history and its effect on the city's black population. I want to ask why Milwaukee, but first, a step back. The timing of your piece is interesting. We're almost two years removed from the 2016 election. In a few weeks, the 2020 election will uh, effectively start. 
I'm curious what prompted you to take on this report uh, in the first place right now. It comes a bit from my background in activism and grassroots organizing. I work with a social justice organization out in East New York, Brooklyn. It's a neighborhood, a working class, predominantly black neighborhood in Brooklyn. And we wanted to take stock of the 2016 election and talk to the folks that we work with, everyday people on the ground about what this means for black people. And through our work, we don't just go out and protest. That's a part of what we do. Um, if I didn't mention the, the name of the organization is Operation Power, People Organizing and Working for Empowerment and Respect. We had a town hall and we like to talk about, you know, substantive issues. And one of those was analyzing the election from a very critical place. We weren't just going to accept any narrative that we were given. It was important for us to actually know what was happening. And through that work, I stumbled upon some data from Huffington Post that was talking about the low black voter turnout throughout the Midwest through key swing states. And one of the cities that they mentioned was Milwaukee. Milwaukee just has not been on my radar. I'm embarrassed to say as a a black person, very familiar with black history or pretty familiar with with black history. Um, And it just wasn't on my radar. And I think for most people, we don't think of black folks when we think of Milwaukee. We think of gentrifying neighborhoods, maybe, at the max. We think about breweries, we think about the Green Bay Packers, but we don't think about Black people who moved to Milwaukee from the great uh, migration. So it started with me wanting to look into the data in Detroit. And then I realized that there was a a story in Milwaukee that has not really been told um, to the extent that it should have, from looking at Black history to the, uh, the political outcome in 2016. You know, when you talk about what inspired you to write this piece, that's much more admirable than what uh, inspires me to go off (laughs) and do most of my uh, reporting and research, which is a tweet that made me mad. Someone's (laughs) take on uh, why Hillary Clinton lost uh, and it being the Russians or something. But uh, what's good or, you know, interviewing the 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 multitude of white Trump voters uh, and, and trying to see what uh, was going on in their head. But what your piece does is it puts black voters front and center in Milwaukee. And you come up with a different conclusion, one that sort of runs against the, the I guess, conventional narrative that yeah. Trump won because of uh, latent racism in the United States that he spoke to. And they, they rose up to elect him, not to say that, that there isn't latent racism in the U.S. and that that didn't mm-hmm. have any effect. But instead, you, you describe something as a, a perfect storm of fatigue uh, that cost Clinton the election, particularly in places like Milwaukee. Right. So that narrative is a half truth. Obviously, we know that racism exists um, and white supremacy has built this country. Capitalism have built this country. And my goal is to look at the latter. What does capitalism do to, what does it do to the black population there? So yes, it's true that uh, white people voted for Donald Trump en masse. The story though, isn't with thinking about how white voters normally vote. 60% of them typically vote for a Republican, whether it is Donald Trump, whether it's Mitt Romney, whether it's George Bush. And in fact, if you look at the data since Nixon, about 60% of white voters have voted for a Republican president. So that is not new. What's new with this election is the fact that instead of this kind of sleeping giant that Donald Trump awakened, Hillary Clinton put a critical mass of her base to sleep in three key swing states. Just three states decided the election. We already know that in the South, it's typically typically going to go to Republican. In some of these coastal cities, it's going to go to Democrat. Presidential elections always fall on the swing states. That is where the story is. And in Wisconsin, as you mentioned earlier, it flipped to Trump. But this idea of flipping really comes from the fact that Black voter turnout fell the lowest in Wisconsin's history. It was that turnout that drove the state to go red. It's not as if black voters are going to vote for a Republican. If we are going to vote, we're going to vote for a Democrat. 
That is if we're going to vote. So the story of 2016 is a story of non-voters. It's not really a story of, quote unquote, this kind of awakening of a white conservative demographic who knew that Trump just needed to be president. There, that is always that's always the case in presidential elections. Yeah, the, the racist vote exists in every election. It's been beaten back before in previous elections. I mean, the the Obama coalition or whatever was able to beat it. It just lost uh, uh, in this election. And I guess if someone's just starting to pay attention in 2016, they can come to a, a conclusion of of the swing voters. But looking back, yeah, Trump got the same votes that Republicans get all the time. Exactly. Yep. And in those three states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, Trump drew about 400,000 more votes than Mitt Romney. So between 2012 and 2016, he got an increase of about 400,000 more votes, which you can attribute probably to just general population increases between, you know, one presidential to the uh, election to the next. Of course, the population is going to grow in those states. However, Hillary Clinton lost about 600,000 votes. So while Trump gained 400,000 Hillary Clinton got 600,000 fewer than Barack Obama in those states. And as you mentioned uh, in your piece, had the uh, the black turnout in Florida uh, not gone down, and also in Michigan and Wisconsin, that would have been enough uh, Absolutely. For, for Hillary to flip it. And, right. and, and of course, you also take a look at uh, academic studies showing that voter suppression is a problem, but... but voter indifference or, or not indifference, but voter distrust of the Democratic Party of both parties, but in this case, the Democratic Party uh, being the more obvious or, or, or being the more jarring uh, party coming up short here in terms of black voters needs. Right. And I don't know if the word is distrust so much as maybe disillusionment. Right. If you look at what has happened to the working class, middle class base in Milwaukee, it has decimated the black population there. So underneath all of the stats and all the you know, political strategizing and political analyzing is a, is a lot of loss, a lot of economic loss, a lot of um, kind of displacement of communities, communities that no longer have the social fabric that they used to have, you know, 30 and 40 years ago, because a number of black people moved to these Midwest cities for a better life, you know, to escape this racist caste system. And when they get there, it's, you know, they don't avoid a lot of the, the same, you know, racial problems, but it can be mitigated by the economic conditions, which is, you know, what I talk about in the piece. It can be mitigated by the fact that you do have jobs to, to offer young black men for 80 and $90,000 straight out of high school in the 1980s, which is insane if we think about it. So when you examine what has happened with these communities where for one, black men relied on those production jobs in Milwaukee. And then in a matter of no time, it was just gone. What does that do for your sense of faith, really, in, in politics at all? So whether it's the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, if you see that your economic position has stayed the same for about 40 years, you could put a, a black woman you know, radical president, you could put whoever, if they see that their conditions have been stagnant and gotten worse, what faith do you have that politics will work for you? And these are the stories that I'm hearing from locals on the ground, which unfortunately nobody was really talking to these people to hear their stories. And that's what I wanted to do. And let's apply this to the, the Clinton campaign and how it chose to reach out to black voters and I guess this goes down to the whole uh, identity versus class distinction, which really is only a distinction uh, in the minds of, of liberals, I'd say. But y you <laughs> note in your piece, and it, some people might push back on this, how the, how the Clinton campaign decided to focus on identity instead of economic arguments. And I think 
uh, you're right, even though people will disagree with that. But what perfectly encapsulate that me- encapsulates that message, as you note in your piece, is when Clinton talked about, well, if we break up the big banks tomorrow, will that end racism? How did the campaign's decision to appeal to identity rather than economic arguments end up backfiring in the end? A lot of folks in Milwaukee, I think, um, based on some of the community leaders that I've spoken to, folks that I've reached out to just going through this city, felt that they were being placated and patronized a bit. That type of argument or that type of appeal is not going to work by itself. If you are looking at a community that literally they see the jobs have, have left. <laughs> They've seen these manufacturing, you know, the manufacturing industry shutter and either move to the suburbs or they've gone overseas. So it's just, it could probably work in some places um, where folks are doing better economically, but folks just don't have the time for that. They don't have the patience for it. They're struggling to eat. A lot of folks are, uh, you know, Milwaukee is in the top three of virtually every negative socioeconomic indicator you can think of. 50% of uh, black men have gone through the incarcerate, the criminal justice system. It's got the highest incarceration rate in the country. So you just appealing to, as you know, Alderman Khalif Rainey said, he's a legislator in Milwaukee. If he just, if you're just having Beyonce and Jay-Z on stage and talking about hot sauce, that is not going to be enough. I was struck by how some of the people you interviewed would bring up the Clinton's history, going back to Bill Clinton yes. and the crime bill and, you know, Hillary Clinton's past comments. Um do you think that the Clintons, one, underestimated that issue of their, their past, but also, two, another uh, issue that, that the people you interviewed discussed is 2016 election came after you know, recent years of tumult in the streets in Milwaukee and in Baltimore and in all these cities where we saw cops shooting unarmed black kids. Mm-hmm. And them being the cop getting let off the hook and communities responding, responding to that as well as, uh, you know, decades of economic stagnation here. And as I, I forgot, the I, was it the alderman who noted that that happened during the first black president, Obama, in office as this right. is going on? Do you right. think that the Clinton campaign underestimated that sort of uh, kind of disaster going on in, in these in, in the cities when it during its campaign? I think what's worse is that they were ignorant to it. I don't even think they knew. If they knew, then it's probable that she would have visited Wisconsin at least once as the Democratic nominee, and she didn't. And that stuck with a lot of people. It reminds me of the time I I was doing a, a bit of campaigning for Obama in Ohio. And I will say that was also a little bit of a, a inspiration in doing this because you know, I had some background with the the region. And so I knew it couldn't just be about people flipping to Trump when, again, as you mentioned, Obama had this, you know, coalition that kind of went across class. But in any event, there was this very striking story that pe- people would tell me as I was campaigning in, in Ohio about Mitt Romney um, and his company, Bank Capital, going to Indiana and having workers build a stage, it was a platform for, I don't know, weeks, months. And when the platform was done being built, they had the corporate leaders get on this stage and tell the workers that they were fired. Because, you know, with these hedge funds, they, you know, rely on kind of bankrupting companies and reorganizing and selling things and piecing them off. And that resonated with people. People are not ignorant about the economic conditions around them. So I feel that for a lot of people in Milwaukee, Hillary Clinton was like their Mitt Romney. She was disassociated from working class issues. She was a corporatist 
she worked for Wall Street. To them, she was their Mitt Romney. And so it was almost this visceral reaction to the fact that she did not step foot in Wisconsin once. Like that was their their bang capital story. With all this going on, she didn't even come and visit the state. And it was like coming from a place of of hurt, really. And so I don't think she even knew about it, which makes it even worse. Democrats seem to be uh, tearing at their shirts as usual and uh, unclear of how to approach Trump, whether or not they uh, should speak to the base or appeal to those uh, few voters that went from uh, Obama to Trump. Uh, And it just sort of seems like this problem is easily solvable, but it just involves going against the uh, interest of the Democratic Party's donor class, which Mm -hmm. is simply just to do more socialism. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) Do you you think that's... uh, kind of a fair take here in terms of, of, of what you think the best part, the best way to go forward is because uh, just generally policies that help people, why not? Yeah. They would be attractive. You think? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think it's, I think that is pretty accurate. The problem with, you know, the democratic party, as you said, is this, commitment to a liberal um a liberal corporate elite and i almost sound like a conservative when i say that but that's kind of the reality of things they've abandoned you know i'm not i'm preaching to the choir here but they abandoned the labor movement after you know 1968 when the democratic nominee lost to president nixon they revamped their whole strategy to not appeal to these working class issues, but at the time they were thinking of, you know, the working class as kind of they do now as a strictly kind of white phenomenon. And so there have been these pendulum uh, swings where it's either, you know, white working class or identity politics. And there hasn't been that intersection. And I think the fundamental problem is that both parties are, you know, proponents of capitalism. I don't think that's going to change in the near future. So this piece, you know, some may interpret it as a, like a lesson for Democrats to follow. I consider myself a pretty independent voter. I would never vote for a Republican as long as they're conservative. But Democrats, for the most part, don't share my politics, at least not mainstream politics. Um, I come from a tradition of black radical politics. Fred Hampton and Angela Davis are my heroes. So for me, the Democratic Party is committed to capitalism. And for that reason, it's going to be hard for Democratic Socialists, I believe, to be super effective, though, you know, I support, you know, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, and hopefully they can push the party more to the left. Uh, as far as the future, who knows? There may need to be a, a separate party. You know, uh, Alderman oh. Rainey was talking about an independent yeah. black political party. The Midwest was actually kind of the stomping grounds for that black political thought in 1972 with the Gary, Indiana political convention. And so black people were talking about that then as well, because they knew that in the long run, the democratic party wouldn't really look at that intersectionality, at least um, from what they could see in the immediate future. So those democratic socialist policies would be ideal but I, who knows what the Democrats plan on doing? And that's kind of the 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 main issue. I, I don't know if they want to do anything about it. Yeah, I found your piece talking back sort of to the, the strategist class that's trying to appeal to the, the, the swing voter, which in this case would be the Trump swing voter through sort of Clinton triangulation. And you use these words. But uh, I found your piece talking uh, sort of uh, in correlation with that now um, – famous tweet i forgot who it was you'll probably know sam since you're much more online than i am of uh democrats are gonna take the lesson from 2016 and say well it's time to get more racist <laughs> randy Basically. randy g dub randy g dub thank you randy g dub for that tweet um 
It, well, uh, it it it's funny that uh, you mentioned uh, Malika that you mentioned Nixon being the watershed moment for when Democrats said we we have to uh, or, or or started wanting to appeal more to the the base sort of right wing uh, interests of America. Because Nixon, for all his reactionary tendencies, and we all know he had a lot of them, he also passed more left-wing legislation, uh, really, than most uh, Democrats that have come since. And, you know, he he passed OSHA, he passed the EPA. And uh, uh, this was obviously at a time when unions were stronger, uh, labor organizations were stronger, uh, but... It, it, this seems to be there. There was this watershed moment where Democrats could have taken a look at maybe the reasons w- why they lost, and uh, and and actually speaking to the working class wasn't. It didn't appear to really be one of them in 1968. So, well, I mean, to it, be clear, there the strategy that happened um, after it was. Robert F. Kennedy, when he passed away, they had to get a new nominee. And the strategy that they adopted was really to abandon working class issues entirely. So the identity that they pressed upon was kind of this multiracial coalition, but it didn't deal with substantive economic issues. It dealt with things like, you know, civil rights, which obviously is very important. Um, things that could appeal to, you know, people of color, but without the substantive economic critique that would be necessary to sustain those civil rights issues. It's clear that the the donor class and the the strategist class of the Democratic Party needs to pay attention to the people who are who are increasingly leaving the party yeah. or just finding uh, that the party's of no use to them anymore or else they're going to keep losing and we'll have Trump 2020 and uh, what is it? Donald Trump Jr. 2024 in our, our hell world. Uh, Malika Jabali, uh, you can find her bylines at Essence, The Root, and Glamour Mag. Follow her on Twitter at Mike Malika Jabali and be sure to check out her piece in currentaffairs.org, Current Affairs Magazine right now, currentaffairs.org. You can read it right now, The Color of Economic Anxiety. Uh, Malika, anything uh, else you'd like to add? Where can people find anything, uh, other stuff you're working on? That, uh, you you listed it, man. Right. Uh, I also started an Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead and drop your Instagram. We got uh, Instagram people in our audience, right? I don't know. We don't, ins- we don't, we don't even have an Instagram. <laughs> Get on it. It's fun. So it's called Woker and Broker. I do a lot of memes about being woke and broke. Hell yeah. We can. Well, we're at least broke. We're trying. We're trying to get better on all fronts. <laughs> the uh, hopefully some of those I'm not on Instagram, but hopefully some of those memes will make it onto Twitter. The the, the classic screen cap of, of yeah, Instagram. Or, I mean, to to be real, I take a lot of the Twitter from my feed and screen cap it onto the Instagram. So <laughs> Twitter's really the goat. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Malika, thanks so much. Thank you. And welcome back to the Sentinel cast number 84. A prison strike swept across the country in August and September. Inmates protested the virtual slave labor system that sees them drafted into jobs that pay just pennies per hour. Naturally, the strike led to a backlash by correctional authorities, which we discussed with Ted Kelly, a Philly-based activist and writer for Workers World. Ted also was kind enough to record and share with us an interview with Bryant Arroyo, an inmate and activist at the State Correctional Institute in Frackville. Here's Ted teeing up that interview for us. I would like to say um, at the top, and maybe we can have it mentioned that... um, uh, you know, the just to give a shout out to the comrades in New York who pretty successfully fought off an attack from the Proud Boys on Friday night. Uh, it's a really dangerous situation, that, especially given the level of collusion with the NYPD that uh, Gavin McInnes is bragging about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he it's something that he feels like he can just openly talk about a violent gang he started with no right. repercussions. <laughs> yeah. 
it's, um, uh, it's the freelance uh, wing of the violent gang that is the NYPD. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I met Bryant for the first time um, this year. Uh, he's, he's serving a life sentence at SCI Frackville right now for a crime that he didn't commit. Um, he's been there for 25 years. Hmm. Um, his birthday is uh, on Saturday, so he'll actually be, I think it's his 25th birthday that he's done in prison. Um, but he's, uh, he's a, he's pretty extraordinary, um, just because of the things that he's been able to organize and, um, accomplish. Like for instance, um, in back in, I think it was 2006, there was a coal gasification plant, um, that was going to be built just like 300 feet from the yard. Um, and they were, it was something to do with, you know, taking some horrible chemicals out of the ground and turning it into a fuel that can be used. Uh, Jack Rich is the local, um, sort of tycoon. It was backed by governor, former governor Ridge, um, you know, all the heavy hitters in the oil industry. And what he did, um, when he saw the almost hidden, uh, notification from the prison staff that this was going to potentially have an environmental impact. He organized uh, the prisoners at inside uh, the facility. Uh, now, signing and circulating a petition in prison is completely not allowed. Um, so what he had, what he did, and what he had others do, is sign a letter. He basically took this petition he had written and changed all the pronouns from I'm uh, from we us to I, me, mine, and, um, you know, sent, sent this, uh, group of letters demanding that the facility be scrapped. Um, you know, it made the headlines in the local paper. Um, and then after it made headlines, they responded by getting another, I think 900, um, signatures. So all told it was basically one in three prisoners at SCI Frackville joined this movement that Bryant uh, organized. And the facility, which was like a $400 million facility, never got built. They successfully shut it down. Wow. So that that whole episode led Mumia Abu-Jamal to dub Bryant Arroyo the world's first jailhouse environmentalist. <laughs> so he, uh, he actually knew Mumia when he was in uh, SCI Mahanoy, right when he got out of um, solitary confinement, Mumia, when he got off of death row. So why don't you... Uh briefly set up this conversation uh, that you had with Bryant. It sort of takes uh, takes place or uh, what you talk about takes place in the backdrop of the nationwide prison strike. And uh, I was uh, I was hoping you could talk about that in uh, in setting up this uh, conversation you had with him. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, facilities in Pennsylvania, like everywhere else across the country, were involved in um, some strike activities. Um, and in in Pennsylvania, about six days into the strike, I think it was, uh, late in late August and early September, uh, Governor Wolf announced and his uh, secretary of, or the, the, the Department of Corrections secretary, uh, Wetzel, John Wetzel, announced a statewide lockdown of all facilities. Um, we can get into the specifics uh, perhaps later if you like, but um, basically it was, uh, what, be what it became clear is that it was a, a means of shutting down any potential organization or strike activity uh, in facilities across the state. Um, and in the aftermath of that, a whole host of like really super draconian um, repressive new policies were implemented in, uh, PADOC, um, and as a result of that, Bryant one of the one of the biggest um, and most controversial aspects of the new policies was this complete overhaul and um, repression of the prisoner mail system, including aspects that you know, because the mail is opened and copied by this third party third party um, profiteer uh, based in Florida, you know, it, it jeopardizes attorney client privilege. Um, any any legal correspondence is now basically re opened, recorded, and kept by uh, the staff of the prisons. 
So Bryant uh, has announced his intention to boycott the mail system um, in protest of these policies. Hmm. And uh, also in the interview, Bryant will uh, get into a little bit about the other ways uh, the prisons enacted some more draconian things following uh, the strike. So uh, let's go ahead and play your conversation with Bryant right now. This is a call from Pennsylvania State Correctional Institution, Brackville. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. To accept this free call, press 1. To refuse this free call, press If you have any concern that the person you are speaking with is in mental health crisis or suicidal, please call the State Correctional Institution immediately. Thank you for using Securus. You may start the conversation now. Hello, Brian. How are you? Okay. Not too bad. So... The first question I have for you is, um, you know, basically, what's the latest? Um, and have prisoners stopped using the mail per your boycott? Well, first, I want to at least get the opportunity to piggyback and to let the people know uh, that I've been following this entire unprecedented PA statewide lockdown with great interest and have heard a series of different developments with respect to not just the mail, but the visits, uh, breaching the actual legal mail, and the general uh, correspondence overall. Uh, For example, there's been a lot of complaints as a result of the third-party mail. I'll give you one of the key ones that has been raised that I don't think the DOC uh, thought about and much less has been able to address with respect to inmates who have actual bank accounts and their bank statements have to be sent to the third-party mailing system and smart communications, which is a direct violation of the law if they were to photocopy the bank statements without consent of the actual inmate to do so. Right. And, and, and just to... a serious quagmire. And just to, to clarify for uh, folks listening who might not understand, um, you are responsible for all the stamps, all the communications, you know, you pay for the phone calls that you, you make. Yeah, um... Well, I'm responsible for uh, my phone calls, as far as phone cards go, and any email links, uh, and also any regular postage past the eight free uh, entitled uh, free envelopes. Right. Anything outside of that, I have to pay for, whether it be bulk mail or what have you. But one of the things that I'm encouraging people to do is to have their family members for the regular correspondence to file a formal complaint to the principal deputy chief, federal coordination and compliance section of the Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Department of Justice, 950 Pennsylvania Avenue, Northwest Washington, D.C., 20530. And the reason for that this is, is a because... Call from Pennsylvania State Correctional Institution, Brackville. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. The PADOC has implemented a change in this mail policy, which allows the outside agency to make copies of private and personal correspondence to friends or from friends to loved ones uh, to just your general uh, alliances that you correspond with. Um, and talk to me about specifically the legal mail, which has a different, uh, it's a slightly okay. different category. And- yes. I'm glad that you mentioned that, Ted. Uh, well, this this policy in particular is outright egregiously unconstitutional uh, of the attorney-client privilege, and attorneys in general are ethically bound to ensure confidential communications with their clients. Uh, under 204 Pennsylvania Code subsection 1.6, This includes the obligation to safeguard information relating to the representation of a client against unauthorized access by third parties. That comment number 25 to the Pennsylvania Rules of Professional Conduct, the PADOC uh, knows that this is an unprecedented breach of the attorney-client privilege, and they're actually copying our mail and giving us copies of 
the legal mail uh, in direct violation of not only their rules, but because this is a directive given by the PADOC, they feel as though that they have the right to do that because of this new policy. And what do you think is happening to that mail? Um, they claim that it's being destroyed, correct? The original copies. Yeah, what's I I believe this that, is a call that from Pennsylvania State Correctional Institution, Brackville. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. Oh, uh, they say that with within 15 days if you don't follow grievance, it will be destroyed and the CD will be burned and they burn that every 4 or 5 days. But if you follow grievance, they preserve the evidence for future litigation. Nonetheless, uh, with the regular correspondence, they say they save that in a data bank or database for seven years, and then the legal uh, correspondence, they photocopy uh, all of our legal correspondence, which is un outright unconstitutional, and they know it. However, this information is stored in a microchip. Because as we know, in this digital age, we have what they call a digital footprint. So that is an outright falsehood with respect to what it is that they're saying that they're destroying. If anything, they're destroying it in name only. Now, is this, and again, uh, just you know, obviously, you know, our, these phone calls are all monitored, but um, so don't say anything you don't feel comfortable saying. But um, is this part of a coordinated effort to make life worse for inmates in Pennsylvania, especially after the nationwide events um, this summer? Well, what the DOC has uh, taken is an overzealous approach. Uh, they've actually uh, emptied out all the machines in the visiting room. Uh, they have no food and or drinks for 90 days. They've imposed a 90-day moratorium, and which is actually uh, punitive in nature because they could never say that uh, the people that they were buying the food from, the vendor, uh, they've ever caught, you know, a hamburger with some drugs in it. <laughs> right. So this this is an overzealous uh, posture, uh, not only to to punish us, but punish our family members and actually create a chilling effect and also to discourage them from uh, future visits. Basically, dismantling the uh, family unit. Right. Actually, could, on that subject, could you um, talk about what? your sort of take was when uh, your daughter recently wanted to come visit um, with your with your grandchildren? Yes. Um, I actually uh, I actually spoke with my daughter. My daughter, uh, Genesis, along with my uh, grandkids, wanted to come up for uh, my birthday, which is this Saturday, October 20th. Happy birthday, Brian. And, uh, thank you. And uh, I'll be uh, 47 years young. <laughs> and unfortunately, um, I won't be seeing her because, one, they don't have food or drinks. I've actually had legal visits where I've seen uh, other family members with their children where they've had to actually pick them up and have them drink from the water fountain that they have out there because there's no food and or drinks, and uh, actually truncated their visits and shortened them so that they can go uh and eat and drink something. Right. So all of that has been designed to, you know, discourage family members from coming to visit and uh, at least, you know, being able to, I like to say, break bread and, you know, smile a little bit. Uh, they've actually, you know, took took the smile right out. Yeah. Could you? By, uh, by doing so. Could you talk a little bit about what the the conditions were like and the mood was at SCI Frackville during the the strike and the aftermath? Well, um, during the initial strike, uh, there was a variety of uh, things uh, in lieu of actually what I've said to uh, Workers World mm -hmm. and the interviews that I've had after. Uh, during the aftermath of the initial strike, uh, I felt that there was a lot of things that were happening. For example, uh, 
during the Pennsylvania uh, lockdown, which was unprecedented in history, uh, the inmates were unaware as to what was taking place. Right. But two or three days later, there was a uh, report uh, that was on TV that aired with uh, Secretary Wetzel and uh, Governor Tom Wolf indicating that there was uh, a crisis and it was a drug epidemic, if you will, across throughout the Pennsylvania state institutions. And therefore, this uh, lockdown needed to be uh, invoked and instituted across the state. However, uh, after the initial lockdown, or rather, let me go into during the initial lockdown, we weren't getting showers until about uh, four or five days later. Uh, there was a... Uh, Things got somewhat tensed. Uh, there was a lot of screaming, yelling, kicking the doors. They were giving us food that was just totally messed up. Uh, for example, it was a broccoli, cauliflower, white rice mushed together. Nobody uh, ate it. Everybody rejected it. We kicked the doors and demanded for them to actually recook something and give us something better. Then on top of that, to exacerbate the situation, they also... Um, fed us rotten bananas. And one of the things that I spoke to several uh, White Hats, uh, lieutenants, captains, and so forth, I said that because this is a an unprecedented statewide lockdown, you guys have the responsibility to not only feed us, but feed us doubly so because we're locked in 24 hours a day and seven days a week. And they were giving us for breakfast, like, you know, two pieces of toast, uh, one little maybe four-ounce cup of uh, Rice Krispie, and a, and a cake of milk. And then on days that were, like, pancakes or whatever, they would skip that and uh, alternate the menu uh, with maybe a, a cake and a milk, as if this was a regular lockdown. And right. uh, there was people that were literally, uh, you know, starving and... Uh, People uh, were asking for different medication, the diabetics who needed to eat and drink more and have the, the, the proper nourishment. And during the lockdown, you were also denied access to the law library as well, correct? Hey, Brian, are you still there? Can you hear me, Brian? Okay, and uh, we're back. Uh, Ted, thanks again for uh, for sitting down with Bryant for us. Um, what do you think happened at the end of the call there, by the way? It, it seemed to cut off. Well, I, I spoke to Bryant since then, and he actually told me that at the moment that that call was cut off, uh, all calls were cut off. He was looking at the guys in the phone banks next to him, and oh. theirs were cut off as well. Um, and, you know, it's not that the, the lines went down. There was some kind of, um, some kind of somebody pressed a button somewhere. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's hard. It's hard uh, not to get paranoid, especially when you're dealing with the uh, the prison staff, and because they can do basically whatever they want. But I will say that that's the first time that Bryant and I ever talked about the strike and used that word over the phone. So and, and one he, wonders. <laughs> and he had and he had brought up how prisoners were suffering under the meals they were getting and the lack of medical attention they were getting right before yeah. it was cut right. off. Indeed, and that's you know these are some things that happen daily, and the food is often garbage. But when that lockdown happened. It was genuinely like a new, a new real um, dangerous set of conditions. Keep in mind that most facilities in Pennsylvania don't have air conditioning. So when you think about how hot it was over the summer, especially at the height of, you know, July, August, um, what the conditions were like inside of those buildings, it's shocking. To be denied even the, the basic human decency of a shower for five or six days on end. It's, it's incredible. Um, and I think that's, it's something I, I spoke to a guy at the, um, one of the Philadelphia encampments, the anti ice encampments that happened over the summer, um, who had been locked up for 
something like 14 years. He said the, the most shocking thing coming out of prison was not like, you know, so he, he knew that iPhones existed, you know, <laughs> but uh, he said it was walking down the street and seeing people and realizing like, oh, they actually have no idea what it's like in there. They see things like orange is the new black or Oz or whatever. And they think that's what prisons are like. Ted, uh, <clears throat> for those of us who aren't familiar uh, with Pennsylvania politics, uh, Governor Wolf is a Democrat. That's is that right? And uh, yes, indeed. Uh, I was just wondering if if you wanted to comment uh, on that with obviously uh, more draconian policies in the in the criminal justice world being attributed to the Republicans and 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 rightly so. Uh, but there are some Democrats with their thumb in the pie, so to speak, maybe not uh, directly benefiting financially, but still doing um, nefarious things. And just thought you might it, want to comment on that. It's a really it's a really important question because, you know, we whenever there's the, the framing of electoral politics, we always you know have to do some everyone has their own calculation they make, you know. But with the lesser of two evil things, one has to evaluate, <laughs> I mean, is, is there a lesser evil? And when it comes to this um, prison policy, I, I mean, it, it is something that has now been ad adopted by other states in the immediate aftermath, like Virginia. Um, they put forth a set of proposals. Virginia also has a Democrat mayor. Um, governor. Wolf, governor, excuse me, yeah. And um, Wolf... Uh, also made the decision to keep on his predecessor's secretary for corrections, John Wetzel. Wetzel was actually appointed by Corbett, but sort of like when Obama kept Robert Gates on, <laughs> he's like, oh, okay, we'll keep the one of the more reactionary guys in the administration. Um, let's use him again. Yeah. And I think that's that's something that's you know been pretty shocking. It's true of you know uh, Philadelphia as well. Mayor Kenny campaigned on ending stop and frisk, and has refused to to budge on it since uh, Larry Krasner, who, you know, I, I know is is a favorite and came as out of the movement as a, one of our defense attorneys. The man has gotten friends of mine and comrades of mine off of, you know, from uh, out of trouble. But um, he campaigned and said that he would not pursue the death penalty. And he's still using that as leverage in plea bargains. So we're we're entering this phase where it seems like at the same time that Democrats are running to embrace the FBI, the national security state, all these things, uh, they also seem to be heading towards this weird embrace, um, or rather a, a rather telling embrace of the system of mass incarceration. Yeah, you yeah. See I'm, that? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure how, how weird it is. We were just talking <laughs> with, uh, with Malika Jabali at Current Affairs, who interviewed uh, people in Milwaukee uh, who have black voters who had been turned away by the Democratic Party and discussed a bit about Clinton third wayism and triangulation in which Clinton attempted to appeal to conservative voters by showing how tough he was on crime and right. what motivated the crime bill. And you, you, you think that Democrats after 2016 and all this was brought up that they might have reformed from that. But it's very clear that if you look at, uh, you know, at the gubernatorial level or at the city level, uh, Democrats are just as tough on crime and just in favor of the prison industrial complex as Republicans. And indeed, if, you know, again, to use Philadelphia, I'm from Philadelphia, so I'll always use that as the case. But um, the power that the district attorney's office wields in local politics, I mean, if you look at Governor Ed Rendell was governor. Before that, he was mayor of Philadelphia. Before that, he was district attorney. Um, I think if Larry Krasner tells us one more time that he's not running for mayor, I'm going to suspect something. <laughs> uh, but uh, to, with regarding Wolf in particular, um, the other thing that has to be said about this lockdown is the pretext they used to... Um, to put it in, into place. Um, they said that there was this, um, that, that there were the reports of prison staff becoming sickened um, over the course of a couple weeks, that something was happening where prison staff were falling ill. Um, and what they ended up saying is that people were trying to send drugs through the mail 
um, in order to sell drugs inside the prison. Um, and that some COs handling mail later fell ill, that when prison cells were searched, they came into contact with substances that um, made them sick. And so what, what, what I did and what a lot of different reporters were doing were to actually investigate what, okay, well, what happened to this person? What were they exposed to? What did the toxicology reports show? And you start looking at it and it's, it's like pretty shocking. The like the, the flimsiness of this, um, what seems like a real fabrication. You know, the, when we talk about the couple dozen, um, prison staff corrections officers who were sick and their stories like officer so-and-so was escorting a prisoner who appeared to be under the influence of a drug and later a couple days later he developed bumps on his forehead went to the hospital was there for two hours and was released that's the case of someone being sickened by you know <laughs> and that was the it, go ahead sorry go ahead. no go ahead well that was the pretext for getting rid of food vendors at the prison absolutely yes that somebody's gonna as brian said uh put i don't know drugs in a hamburger and have it sent through yeah um and also i think the question must be raised if mail and food are you know filled with so many toxic first of all that's not how you get high on like these synthetics and like ketamine and stuff like that you can't just touch a piece of paper and now you're tripping um <laughs> but like if this was happening that exposure to the mail was causing people to get sick where are the postal workers who have been also been exposed? There hasn't been a single case. You'd think, you know, <laughs> but yeah. so, I mean, what Bryant said is if, and, oh, and the other thing that's important is, so this crisis was announced, the lockdown happened. And then six days later, over the Labor Day weekend, they announced this whole host of policies. Um, it seems unlikely that like Wolf and Wetzel were at their Labor Day barbecues, like drafting <laughs> a new policy. Um, and involved in that was a $4 million contract to this company called Smart Communications, hmm. which is based in uh, Florida. Um, and they're the profiteer that's handling all mail, um, all non-legal mail. Legal mail is still sent directly to the facilities, but then it's immediately seized and, uh, and opened. The, the Smart Communications thing is, you know, they take the stuff, they open it, they photocopy it. And they send it over. So if this is a, a manufactured controversy in order to get this done, I mean, Bryant compared it to Bridgegate. It's like Wolf said that, oh, there's going to be a little bit of trouble on the uh, Postal Service route. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, a, it's certainly a fucked up situation. Uh, Ted Kelly, thanks so much uh, for, for introducing us to Bryant, uh, getting his words on our program. Uh, do you do you want to dox yourself on Twitter? Do you want to give your Twitter handle right now to our to our audience? I, I might as well. Yeah, it's the uh, the battle between being doxed and uh, self promotion. Yeah, um, I'm at Teddy Redder on Twitter. Um, and, uh, and 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 people can read your writing over at uh, workers.org, right? Workers.org. Yeah. Um, and I I would also love to say that at the end of this month, October 29th. Um, Mumia Abu Jamal has another hearing um, for you know trying to get him ultimately free because he's an innocent man. Um, so anybody who's in the area should uh, come down and turn out in the streets on October 29th for Mumia. Thanks for bringing that up, Ted. No, thanks right. for having me. Thanks for thanks for coming on, Ted. Pleasure. Sentinel cast number 84, still here, still in Washington, D.C. We've now reached the end of the show. Interns, bring in the can. Easy, easy, easy. All right, that'll good. Right there, right there. Oh, 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 the, the smell is causing nearby dogs yeah, we need to, to bark. We need to clean that thing after this week. Dogs won't stop okay. barking. Garbage candidate. Oh, that's me. Garbage candidate. <laughs> Garbage candidate number one, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman. Saudi Arabia's crown prince is a literal butcher. It's increasingly clear he's closely tied to the likely dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi. 
It's no surprise given the atrocities MBS has ordered in Yemen over the past few years. Plus, there was that whole gruesome palace coup he carried out last year at the Ritz-Carlton in Riyadh. Also around that time, bin Salman kidnapped Lebanese Prime Minister Saad Hariri and forced him to resign on television. Uh, The resignation was later rescinded. Look, the point is, it's clear MBS is a fucking psychopath enabled by the scummiest elements of the U.S. government. Corrupt morons like Tom Friedman might like to praise him as an ambitious reformer. The next time they do it, they might have to first fetch the Saudi prince out of the District Sentinel garbage can. Garbage candidate number two, Mike Pompeo. The Secretary of State is running point for Trump's cover-up of MBS's crimes. Pompeo went to Saudi Arabia and Turkey to look into what happened to Khashoggi. There's good indication he was at least provided by Turkish officials with a transcript of how Khashoggi was killed in the Saudi embassy. And yet... Pompeo comes back to the U.S. claiming he doesn't know what happened. He keeps referring to Khashoggi as having disappeared instead of very clearly now being murdered. And Pompeo says he believes the Saudis will conduct a thorough investigation and that we should just give them time. Mike, you're not the first U.S. Secretary of State to attempt to cover up Saudi Arabia's crimes. But you are the latest. And for that, you're nominated for the garbage can. Anything you'd like to say in your defense? I don't have anything to say about that. Didn't think so. Garbage candidate number three, Lindsey Graham. The South Carolina senator might not be apologizing for the Saudi murder of Khashoggi, unlike many of his fellow Republicans, but he still managed to say some supremely disgusting shit this week, tangential to his generally awful foreign policy. Graham joked about Elizabeth Warren's DNA test on Fox News. He said he would be getting one, and that, quote, I'll probably be Iranian. That would be, like, terrible. This was so racist, it even got pushback from Fox and Friends co-host Brian Kilmeade. Well, they have great people, just bad leaders, Kilmeade said. Even worse, Graham is defending his remark by brushing it off as a joke and describing himself as a popular champion in Iran. Quote, name one person who's been a bigger defender of the Iranian people to fight back against their oppressor. Not Lindsey Graham, though the senator is a garbage can nominee again this week. Garbage candidate number four, the New York Times. Fascist Gavin McGinnis sent his gang of Proud Boys onto the streets of New York City to beat up people this week. And one day later, the New York Times published a profile piece on him. Rather than calling him a racist, sexist, white supremacist, the Times titled the piece, quote, Proud Boys founder, how he went from Brooklyn hipster to far right provocateur. Ah, yes, a provocateur instead of, I don't know, the leader of a Nazi gang. And who gives a shit about his journey? Again, he's a Nazi gang leader. Lead with that. The New York Times once again promoting racist right-wing extremists. Anyone still subscribed to this junk should be embarrassed, too. The New York Times is nominated for the garbage can. Garbage candidate number five, the NYPD. When the Proud Boys went on their brown shirt rampage this week, it sure as hell looked like they were getting protection from the NYPD. As Gothamist noted, there's footage of three New York police officers doing nothing as Proud Boys assaulted protesters yelling homophobic slurs. To state the obvious, this is not how the NYPD treats left-wing people, especially people of color at political rallies. To also state the obvious, head Proud Boy dweeb Gavin McKenna said this after the assault, quote, I have a lot of support in the NYPD and I very much appreciate that, the boys in blue. According to news reports, one of the Proud Boys has finally been arrested, a very pasty 38-year-old from New York City named Jeffrey Young. But this arrest was clearly made very reluctantly and only after tons of public pressure. The NYPD is a goon squad full of fascist sympathizers and fascists, and it's nominated this week for the garbage can. Finally, garbage candidate number six, Common. Nothing really against Common, but he fucked up this week. The New York Yankees fucked up a couple weeks ago by crossing a picket line at their hotel, which, as I said at the time, earns you an automatic nomination to the garbage can. So that's why Common is here this week. It happened at the Boston Marriott, where service workers... Again, that's, yes. where, that's where the Yankees crossed exactly, the picket. Exactly. It's where service workers are on the strike, are on a strike for better job protections. It's... As Sam Knight mentioned, the same place where the Yankees crossed the picket line a few weeks ago. I didn't mean to steal your thunder there. That's okay. Boston's local 27 union, which is involved in the action, tweeted a picture of Common as it happened, saying, quote, Hey, Common, this is unacceptable. You don't cross union picket lines when you preach solidarity. Please leave the Ritz-Carlton in Boston. Workers are striking for their futures. The union has a point. So with that, Common, rules are rules. You're nominated for the garbage can. 
All right. We've got Common. We've got the NYPD. We've got the New York Times. We've got Lindsey Graham. We've got Mike Pompeo. We've got Mohammed bin Salman. It was a really, really close race between Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the New York Times, and the NYPD. But prevailing in the end... The The NYPD, NYPD, you are going in the garbage can. I think we might be entering an all-time record here in number of times uh, one garbage candidate has been dumped in a garbage can. Finally protected and served by throwing (laughs) the NYPD in a fucking garbage can. That is the show. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you to our sponsors, the Congressional Dish Podcast hosted by Jen Briney and LevelNews.org. We're back next week with a round of newscasts and a brand new Sentinel cast. We're here in D.C., so you don't have to be. 